0: It is good to be back with you. Good to hear Aaron singing once again. This has been the longest uh, time in my ministry that I've gone without preaching. Uh, and so I don't know if that's going to be refreshing and I'll be good today. Or perhaps I have forgotten how to do it altogether. And so we'll find out here shortly. As all of you are aware, there is a significant election on Tuesday. Many, of course, have already voted and proudly told us that online, while others will head to the polls and wait in line this week. And then we will watch on Tuesday night as the results come in, hoping that our candidate wins and thus saving the nation for another four years. Some will wake up on Wednesday morning euphoric. Others will wake up depressed and threaten to leave and find somewhere else to call home. We've been told over and over again that this particular election is pivotal, maybe the most significant election in our lifetime as far as the future direction of our nation goes. Both sides are claiming that the other is quickly ruining America, one leading us to socialism and the other remaining with violent protests. So who will win? Will it be Biden or will it be Trump or perhaps Kanye West will come from behind in stunning victory and you laugh but this is 2020 I mean who knows what's going to happen can you imagine Kim Kardashian being the first lady for the next four years I don't know who will win on Tuesday but I will make a prediction that I am confident will be correct When we wake up on Wednesday morning, our nation will be ruled by the same one that ruled it when we went to bed on Tuesday night. And no, I am not talking about a victory for Donald Trump, who has never really ruled our nation, nor has any president who has preceded him. And if we put our political parties or those who lead them in a position of trust, ultimate trust, then we are already in trouble regardless of which side prevails. We were supposed to finish this series on the Psalms three weeks ago, but perhaps it is more appropriate to conclude today. Now, that is not to say that we've looked at all the Psalms that we could possibly look at, but I do think we've, we've had a, a good selection of the various types These psalms are the kinds of texts in the Word of God to which we can return time and time again because they meet us emotionally at our needs. And this proves to be an emotional week. The one we are looking at today is one of a group. We're going to look at Psalm 146. It is the first of a group of five, and it is the last five psalms in the Bible. We do not know who the author is, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, ascribes these psalms to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, but this is mere speculation. As a group, they are often called the Hallelujah Psalms, because all five of these psalms begin with the word Hallelujah, and all five psalms end with the word Hallelujah. Now, you're probably looking for it in your text. You won't find it there. It's translated for us, praise the Lord, or some of your translations may have it. We sing the word hallelujah sometimes, even as we did just a few moments ago, but perhaps we don't immediately understand what it really means. It means to praise the Lord, and that is a fitting way to end this study of the Psalms because they are largely focused on the praise And it is a reminder that the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Confession, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God is another way of saying to praise God. We've seen throughout this study the struggles that the psalmists are dealing with, which again is why we can identify with them. And hopefully they've helped us during this time of our struggle. We've heard the psalmist's cries of of desperation, of even depression, of anger. Sometimes that anger is at God. We've heard cries of frustration with his enemies, defeat even, along with many positive things. But in these hallelujah psalms, it is all positive. Nothing but praise here in these last five psalms. The word hallelujah is a word that is not translated into English, it is transliterated, which means it's just our English letters for the Hebrew letters. It is a compound word. The main part of the word is a verb in Hebrew, meaning to praise. The second part of the word, Jah, is a a construct, a a construction of the, the name for God, Jehovah. So put it together, and it is praise the Lord. So when you sing hallelujah, you praise the Lord. So this is a psalm of hallelujah, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes... In the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. In our first two verses, we begin with a general call to praise, and it is going to end that way as well, but we're going to start with the first two verses, and you see that word soul there again. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, which is a reminder that this is a wholehearted praise. It is not just emotional Though it certainly does include that, but this is a wholehearted praise of God. And as we'll see in the latter half of the psalm, it is based on countless reasons that God is worthy of our praise. Which reminds us at this point that it is not just emotional, but it is also mental. It is intellectual. That is, we are recounting, even as we talked about a moment ago, we are recounting what God Has done. Praise is not mindless meditation. It is a thoughtful expression based on the character and acts of God. The Psalms often include the elements of worship of God and teaching about God, that is, recounting His acts and His blessings in the past. And as a result, when we praise God, if we are not reflecting upon who God is and what he has done for us, then we are not really praising him. Now, this introductory praise includes a general call for everyone to praise the Lord, along with a statement that our author is doing exactly that. See, he's not just commanding us to praise the Lord. He is acknowledging that he is commanding the Lord, uh, praising the Lord along with us. He is leading by example. Praise is to be done together. That is corporately. That's what we've gathered to do this morning. But praise is also personal, which means no one else can praise God for you. Now, all of this, of course, must be done while we have breath and life. Now that is not to say, the psalmist is not stating that we will not praise God for all eternity. He is simply saying that while we have a voice, while we have a mind, we are to use that in the praise of God. Dead men tell no tales. Was the saying, I think, in Pirates or the Old West or maybe in Crimes Today, the idea being that the dead cannot speak. And because they cannot speak, they cannot reveal secrets. And so the psalmist here is simply saying that while we live, while we are alive, we are to use our time to praise God, though he certainly does not negate the fact that we are going to praise God for all of eternity. Now notice also that this is a call to praise God, not just when things are good. That's the easy part. I mean, we tend to quickly offer praise to God when the doctor's report comes back positive or when the new job is going well or the kids are successful. And of course, we ought to praise God during those times, but the praise of the psalmist here does not depend upon circumstances other than the one circumstance that we've already mentioned, and that is you being alive. That is the only circumstance he gives here. Otherwise we are to praise God with no qualifiers meaning our praise is appropriate at all times. So if you are thinking to yourself, yes, I will praise God when when this changes or that gets better, then you are already misunderstanding what the praise of God is about. We are to praise God at all times, which means even if we wake up on Wednesday morning and Kanye West is our new president, well, maybe, maybe that's an exception. In the next two verses, we go to a warning about misplaced praise, meaning that it is possible to put our praise, to put our trust in the wrong people. In fact, praise of of all kinds for all people is not exactly right. That is, the kind of praise we're talking about is reserved for God, and therefore it is never appropriate to give this kind of praise to people. Now, granted, we do encourage people, we do honor people for their accomplishments and their, uh, their goals that they've achieved, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not the same thing that we're talking about here. Men and women do not deserve the same kind of praise that is reserved only for God. Now, this is true even of high-ranking men and women, like in this case, the text says princes. In our setting, we might say politicians rather than princes. And that is why I began where I did. This morning, and why I said this is an appropriate uh, Sunday to end this series on because it warns us, verse 3, about putting our trust in princes, those who rule and reign over us. I have never been overly interested in politics. I keep up with the basics both uh, nationally and locally, but I don't get into it as heavily as many others do. And so every once in a while, someone will ask me, how difficult is it to keep politics out of the pulpit? And my response is, it's not very difficult at all. Because I realize that other pastors may struggle with this more than I do. I also realize that some pastors don't struggle with it at all. They simply wed the two together together. But I don't struggle with it as much as some others because I don't believe that politicians of any label are the ultimate solution for our national problems. Now, they are important. Don't get me wrong. Leadership is important, and therefore those who lead us are significant. But they are not the ultimate answer because they are mere men and women. And verse 3 says, there is no salvation in or through them. And that is why I try to stick to preaching the Bible and the message that God has for us here, ultimately a message of deliverance from sin, because that supersedes everything else. If our salvation is our greatest need, and if salvation is the greatest gift that God could give us, then our praise is to be directed toward the one who alone can give us this salvation. And that means it is not directed at any politician, any athlete, or any movie star. Because none of them are capable of doing that. Again, we can acknowledge their talents. We can thank them for their leadership. But we don't put our ultimate trust in them like we do God. And therefore, we do not praise them like we do God. Why not? Because the psalmist said, all men die. Even the best and even the most prominent and powerful will die. And when they do, while their legacy might continue, their influence quickly fades away. In fact, the psalmist says it basically happens immediately at death. Because all of the plans of a man or a woman goes to the grave with them. And therefore, there's no reason to put our trust in men. They can't even solve their own problems, much less ours. And so it makes no sense to put our trust in earthly rulers because they will return to the dust just like the rest of us. Now, again, just to be clear, I am not saying that leadership does not matter and that it's immaterial who presides over our nation. I am simply warning us against elevating such people to places of ultimate trust and praise which belongs only to God. Leaders will inevitably disappoint because they are all sinful men and women, and they will invariably die just like all of us for the same reason. And when they die, others will take their place and they will eventually be relegated to the history books. Someone else's dreams and plans will replace them and then someone else will replace them and the cycle will just continue. All of which is in stark contrast to God. If we jump down to verse 10, who reigns forever and that is why he is worthy of our praise. And so we've seen in verses 1 and 2 this call to to general praise. Verses 3 through 4, there is a warning for unworthy praise. And then the remainder of the psalm is the fact that God is worthy of continual praise for multiple reasons. Verse 5 begins with a beatitude, the last of the beatitude in the psalms. The psalms began with a beatitude. Blessed is the man, verse 1 of Psalm 1. And now we have blessed is he. We are blessed when we know that God is our help and God is our hope. He helps us in every way. So I'm not going to try to detail or categorize the help of God on our behalf. Remember, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, which certainly leads us to the conclusion that we need his help in every way. Along with the fact that when Jesus was leaving, he said, I am going to send you another helper. And we recently did a series on the help of the Holy Spirit. So it is clear that we need the help of God. We like to think we're independent. We like to think we don't need anyone's help, which is why, and you've done this even as I have, you often ask someone who's going through a difficult time, is there anything we can do to help you? And more times than not, they will say no. And perhaps part of the reason is because we want to be independent. Or maybe we agree with the Beatles who said, well, I get by with a little help from my friends. I don't need a lot, but a little would be good. But that is not what the text here says, nor what the Bible says overall. It's not that we need a little help now and then. We need all the help of God. We need the help of God in every way. And God is that help, which is a reason for continual praise. The writer of Hebrews says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And that's a compilation of several verses from the Psalms. And yes, that means that we don't have to fear a virus. Now, we ought to be careful, but we don't have to fear. So for the believer, there is never a reason to say in despair, I have no one to help me. Now that might be true when you're trying to move and you can't get anyone to help. But it's not true in a general way when it comes to our lives because we have a God who is our help. And because God is our help, he is worthy of continual praise. And then we see not only that he's our help, but he is also our hope. Our hope is in him because he holds our future and we trust that his promises for that future will come to pass in spite of what we might see and experience in the present. As you know, hope is a powerful motivator. It gives us strength and energy. It helps us persevere because we're looking forward to something in the future, and therefore it gives us strength in the present. If you have hope that someone will eventually marry you someday, it will help you through the times of loneliness. If you have hope that a better job is on the horizon, it will help you get through the difficult job that you have in the present. If you have hope that your team will win a championship, well, maybe I don't need to use that as an example. (laughs) The opposite is also true. If we lose hope, it begins the downward spiral into all kinds of other negative things. So for the Christian life, the fact is that God is the one in whom we hope, which means we will not be disappointed, for he, in fact, is faithful. In fact, the hope of the future makes the suffering of the present bearable. You know what Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul went through a lot of suffering. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. A hymn writer some years ago combined these first two aspects. He said, oh God, our our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We look backwards and we see that God has helped us. We look forward and see that God is our hope. Verse six, God is also worthy of our continual praise because he is creator of all. That's a recurring theme in the Psalms, and we've already looked at it, so I won't dive deeper into it this morning. The last line of verse 6 is a little hard to put in context. It says in the ESV from which I'm reading, who keeps faith forever. The King James Version says truth rather than faith. The NIV says who remains faithful forever. And so there's an interpretive issue here. Does it mean that God is faithful to us, keeping us and preserving us, and therefore is worthy of our praise? Or is it that our trust is solid because God is the revealer of truth? Now, both of those, of course, are true. It's simply a matter of which one the text is trying to teach. I think it's the former, that God is faithful, therefore he is keeping and preserving us. This then leads to some specific things that God does, many of which we've discussed before. Now keep in mind that these are not absolute promises. These are statements about the nature and character of God who acts in these ways. But we could certainly give examples where it seems like God has not acted in these ways. But keep in mind, our perspective is limited and our time frame is different than God's. So verse 7, God is a God of justice. And because he is a God of justice, he is worthy of continual uh, praise. He gives justice to the oppressed. God sees what is taking place, even among the least of his creatures. As you know, this is another major issue in our culture today. Protests and marches are designed to draw attention to the injustice that is going around and demanding justice at the same time. And as much as we might want justice for all and promise to provide it in the first line of our Constitution, man's justice always falls short. And the reason it does is the same reason that we've already mentioned. And that is because men and women are sinful. And therefore, even our attempts at justice are never completely true nor totally pure in motive. But God has no such deficiencies. His justice is complete and pure. And again, I know that's easy to say. I know it's easy to read in Scripture that God is a God of justice and then look around at what is going on and say, well, if God is a God of justice as he says he is, why is he not stepping in and righting the wrongs that I'm seeing around me? Again, remember that our timetable is not the same as God's. His promise of justice does not necessarily mean that it will happen today, nor even in our lifetime, nor even in this life, which is a hard lesson for us to swallow. Again, it's one of the recurring statements in the Psalms, crying out, why are the evil people seeming to prosper while the righteous people who are trying to follow God suffer?" Why doesn't God step in and do something about our circumstances if he has revealed himself as a God of justice? Well, he does. He does see the oppressed, and he does provide justice. We just need to trust that it's going to be done in his own time. And then we see that God is a God who provides. He gives food to the hungry. He provides our daily bread, even as we see in the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Even as he did in the wilderness with the Israelites, providing them with manna for 40 years. Or how he provided food to his prophet Elijah through ravens. Or he multiplied miraculously the widow's oil so that she could continue to feed her family. You'll notice also that as we continue through this list, We will see Jesus doing all of these things in the gospels. I won't necessarily refer to all of them, but in your mind's eyes, you will see that. That Jesus miraculously fed thousands on multiple occasions, not just to meet their physical needs, though it did do that, but also to demonstrate his deity. Now, the fact that God is our provider does not mean that we can sit on the couch and trust that God is going to feed us. Scripture also tells us that if a man refuses to work, he's not going to eat. You see, God uses means to provide. It's not always miraculously that God provides. Oftentimes, it is through the use of means. And one of the means that he provides food for us is through giving us the ability and talent to be able to go to work and have a salary so that we can provide for our families. That is what we are acknowledging every time we pray before a meal. We are acknowledging that even though we went to work and we earned the money and we went to the grocery store, it is ultimately God who is providing for this family. It also doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help others. That when people come to us and they say, I'm, I'm hungry, we say to them, Well, God bless you, God will provide. No, God uses us as means to provide for others. And we've seen this repeatedly in our church this past week, our food pantry gave away about 40 bags of food to 40 different households. In a few weeks, many of you will participate in bags of blessings where you will fill a bag with certain food items. We will combine that with a turkey and a pie and some some other things. And we will provide Thanksgiving meals for around 100 families. That is God providing food because he is the provider through the use of means. And that means is you and I. Then verse 7, God gives freedom to prisoners. He is a chain breaker, as we sometimes sing. Now, this does not mean that God opens all the prisoner, prison doors and sets the criminals free. It doesn't mean that now we must be anti-incarceration for those who commit crimes. We actually have no record of Jesus literally releasing anyone from prison in spite of the fact that in Luke's gospel, quoting from Isaiah, he says that will be true of the Messiah. Justice demands that criminals pay the penalty to society for their crimes. Now, there are examples of God doing this, especially in the book of Acts. We see multiple times in the book of Acts where men are in prison for sharing the gospel. Men like Peter, Paul, and Silas miraculously released from prison. We can go to the Old Testament and see men like Joseph or Daniel's three friends also released. But even if this is not a promise, but even this is not a promise, that everyone who is imprisoned, even because of their faith, will miraculously be set free. John the Baptist wasn't. There have been countless incidences throughout history Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a notable example of men and women who were in prison for their faith who were not set free but instead died. So it must primarily refer to spiritual freedom, a deliverance from the bondage of sin, something God in Christ has done for every believer. All of us were imprisoned by sin and part of being redeemed is being set free from that prison and given new life. Something we've said repeatedly is worthy of our continual praise, even if the rest no longer happens or never did happen, even if God never does anything else. The fact that he has broken you and I free from the chains of sin and given us salvation is worthy of continual praise. Verse 8, God is our sight giver. He opens the eyes of the blind. Again, we know that Jesus did this a few times physically but not in every instance. And so again, the primary emphasis must be spiritual. We were blind in our sins, and yet he opened our eyes to the truth. And indeed, isn't this the greatest blindness? Not seeing God for who he is, and therefore having to have our eyes open so that we can come to faith in Christ and receive spiritual sight. Verse 8, he is a God who exalts. That is, he takes the humble and he exalts them. Of course, the opposite is also true. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. Still in verse 8, God is a God who loves the righteous, which means he is holy. Yes, there is a biblical sense in which God loves all people, but there is a specific sense in which God loves those who belong to him. Those who have been made righteous by his Son what we call a positional righteousness, which does not negate the need for a pursuit of practical righteousness. The two go together. Once we've been declared righteous, we have a desire to pursue righteousness because God is a God who is holy and righteous. Verse 9, God is a God who is our protector. Again, all of these are reasons why God is worthy of our continual praise. In the Old Testament context, this would refer to the non-Israelite or the foreigner. There were specific laws in the Old Testament concerning these folks. And it was often based on the fact that the Israelites knew what it was like to be foreigners because they had been in Egypt for so long in slavery. In fact, that's what we're going to look at next Sunday. We're going to start a new series next Sunday on some of the major crises in the Bible. And the first one we're going to look at is the Egyptian bondage. So even though Israel was God's chosen people, he looked out for others as well. And the truth is, we are the sojourners. We are all sojourners. We are all foreigners because this world is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And God is our protector in this world to get us to the next. Likewise, he says about the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow, where God is seen to especially be the protector of those who are most vulnerable in society. And this, of course, reminds us of James, who defines true religion as helping those kinds or classes of people. It shows yet again that God is concerned about the least, the needy, who need his protection. And again, he uses means to do it which means we need to be concerned about them, which means we need to be active in meeting their needs because God is using us to look out for those who are most vulnerable. Well, as we've seen, it ends where it begins. It ends with a hallelujah, with a praise to the Lord, a continual praise from his people because he is worthy of that praise. Only in the last verse, there is one added element. It is because God reigns forever. Now, does that mean that we can praise God during a pandemic? Yes. Uh, we said there are no qualifications here other than being alive. So praising God is a choice, not a function of our circumstances. It is an attitude of the heart, not our environment. We must, not, or we must allow our praise to control how we respond to circumstances rather than our circumstances contro- controlling our praise or lack thereof. So if, if, as I said at the outset, man's chief end is to glorify or praise God forever, then surely it ought to be our desire and our delight now. We're not waiting for eternity to praise God. We are to praise God now. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are worthy of our praise. We've just uh, touched the tip of the iceberg this morning. There are so many other reasons why. You are worthy of our continual praise. And yet so oftentimes, we focus on our circumstances. We refuse to praise you. We choose not to praise you because of what you've allowed into our lives. I pray that you'd forgive us for that. And I pray that we would praise you for who you are and all that you've done for us, not just for eternity, but for today and tomorrow as well. And Lord, we do pray that you would reign over our nation. That regardless of what happens on Tuesday, we would be reminded that you are sovereign and you are still on the throne. We do pray for the election on Tuesday. And we pray that you would place men and women locally and nationally who know you and who govern and rule wisely because of that. And We pray, Lord, that your will would be done. But regardless, I pray that we would wake up on Wednesday morning praising you, even as we do on Tuesday night. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.